the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this January 11th edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can uh, follow us online, danproftshow.com. On social media, at least for now, at Dan Proft, we'll talk about uh, the deplatforming of President Trump uh, and uh, what the deplatforming of President Trump in congressional form that uh, is being pursued by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She sat down for an interview with Leslie Stahl in 60 Minutes last night and had this to say about the president. Well, sadly, the person who's running the executive branch is a deranged, unhinged, dangerous president of the United States. And only a number of days until uh, we can be protected from him. Uh, But he has done something so serious uh, that there should be prosecution against him. Well, uh, I gather that the 25th Amendment is off the table. That isn't. Nothing is off the table. She's accepting allies, of course, willing to let people come over to her side if Mike Pence wanted to invoke the 25th Amendment and scramble a cabinet meeting. Uh, Who is she to stand in the way of that? Doesn't seem like that's going to happen, according to most of the reporting, including uh, comments made publicly by HUD Secretary Ben Carson, who said basically he has not been uh, there's been been no overture made to him about any such meeting. And he doesn't think it's uh, right and proper, given there's nine days to go before the president leaves office. Um, But it's not to say that there are not Republicans who are supportive, generally speaking, of what Pelosi is suggesting, maybe not a criminal prosecution, but certainly a belief that the president's actions last week rise to the level of an impeachable offense. Remember, the claim that's being made is his comments on January 6th were a seditious incitement to riot, which is a big claim. State, uh, Senator, outgoing Senator Pat Toomey, who's a lame duck, he's not running for re-election in 22, from Pennsylvania, was on with uh, Wall Street Journal's Paul Gigo over the weekend on Fox. And uh, Toomey said this. I have to say, I do think the president's behavior um, this week does disqualify him from serving. But we've got 10 days left, 11 days left. He's not going to be serving after that time. We'll have a new president. I don't know whether logistically it's actually even really possible or practical, and I'm not sure it's desirable to attempt to force him out, what, a day or two or three prior to the day on which he's going to be finished anyway. So um, I, I'm not clear that's the best um, path forward, Paul. There's, there's sort of a flow chart of questions to answer. Uh, is it impeachable? Uh, can he be impeached logistically? Even if he can be impeached logistically, is it judicious to pursue this? A bunch of House Republicans implored Joe Biden to intercede and tell Nancy Pelosi to knock it off. And Joe Biden is going to play Pontius Pilate on that matter. For more on all of this, 
We're pleased to be joined by Daniel Henninger, Deputy Editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Dan Henninger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to work you, Dan. Well, um, so there's a lot of questions there. Um, mm. I, I, you know, the, the threshold question, uh, does is there uh, something that the president said that rises to the level of an impeachable offense? And then can it happen? Should it happen? Uh, it seems to me that there's not a lot of enthusiasm among Republicans for the should it happen, even if there is um, enthusiasm to heap moral scorn on President Trump for his handling of what happened at the Capitol on the 6th. Yeah, well, as you say, Dan, there is a kind of um, hierarchical flowchart here that one has to sort through to think, try to think clearly about what's going on. Um, so we have, let's put it this way. I, I guess I would say there are four paths of action here, at least. One, the 25th Amendment. Uh, two, impeachment. Three, Trump resigning. And three, allowing uh, events to go forward to January 20th when Joe Biden will be inaugurated and Trump will go into the future along with the rest of us. So which of these um, uh, should happen or could happen? Uh, I believe the 25th Amendment, uh, the idea that Vice President Pence would invoke this uh, and convene a cabinet meeting to declare uh, President Trump uh, incapacitated in some way is not going to happen. I think you can take that one off the table. That's just not going to happen, notwithstanding Nancy Pelosi teeing it up on 60 minutes as the pretext for her proceeding to impeachment. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the Democrats who've impeached Trump once already uh, on matters related to Ukraine, maybe we can recall all that, uh, will proceed and uh, probably will vote to impeach Trump. But they do have to send up an article of impeachment. And at least we learned a few things about the process when uh, Trump was impeached the first time, which hmm. is that uh, under normal due process, uh, the tr- president has allowed to assemble a legal team to defend himself, right? And at the moment, this looks like a one-article impeachment based on the idea that uh, the president in that speech incited people to riot and, and, uh, and commit sedition against the United States. We have an excellent piece, I recommend your readers right now, on the editorial page today by Jeffrey Scott Shapiro, who's former associate district attorney, making a pretty strong argument that as a legal matter, it is going to be extremely difficult to prove that first article of impeachment. We know what happened that day, but to say that uh, Trump is literally guilty of incitement to insurrection and riot, it's just going to be difficult to prove. Uh, well, and, 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 and not to, yeah, not to interrupt there, but I mean, you know, it's, it's just one of those things people need to be reminded of. You know, there is a Supreme Court jurisprudence on this. There's a seminal case, Brandenburg v. Ohio, that sort of sets forth the standard for uh, speech that is not protected. And uh, and it is a very high bar to clear um, for a political figure, no less, but a very high bar to clear. And it would be a very bad precedent to set if uh, the evidence doesn't clear that bar and they move forward with uh, an impeachment and conviction regardless. Um, and, and so, you know, so so in terms of all the, the talk about the Trump's conduct being precedent setting, there's the, uh, the, the 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 potential danger of 
uh, bad precedent setting being followed by worse precedent setting. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if we did this, uh, you could find a way, any way, to impeach any president uh, for some offense of some sort in the future. And the impeachment's supposed to be difficult. And uh, Nancy Pelosi <clears throat> obviously is determined to make it easy. Um, I think, you know, I've been thinking about this, Dan, and one question that I think you have to ask yourself is, why is Pelosi doing this? The country is at a white heat of emotion. No question about it. Uh, it's difficult to talk to people about this subject in any sort of rational way. Uh, we have this political bonfire burning, and she clearly is simply pouring more gasoline onto the bonfire. And uh, <clears throat> I have begun to think that Pelosi believes that there's no downside for it for Democrats. I mean, in Nancy Pelosi's world, which is electoral politics, you're trying to win or lose elections. And you win or lose elections by getting more than 50% of the vote or in the presidential elections, getting more electoral <laughs> votes than the other guy. And I think what the game here is, is to keep uh, the Trump issue aflame, keep him in front of the American people uh, as a contentious issue. It unites Democrats and divide, now divides Republicans. Um, the Georgia Senate uh, runoff were lost, undoubtedly, because Democrats, whatever their own divisions, are united at election time, turned out to vote. Republicans turned out in marginally lesser numbers and lost that election. And I think her calculation is that that would occur over and over again as Republicans fought among and fight among themselves over Trump and the future of their party. It's going to affect congressional elections, Senate elections. And in her calculation, if Trump runs again four years from now, he'll lose again if uh, this kind of issue is kept in front of the people for four years. So Nancy Pelosi sees no downside. God knows the rest of us see downside in the damage being done to the country. She sees no downside in keeping this bonfire going, the same bonfire they built through the Russian collusion and then the impeachment. She thinks it benefits Democrats. Uh, when we come back with Dan Henniter, I want to uh, get his assessment of uh, if uh, anyone on the left sees a downside to the purge that uh, is going on, not just with respect to President Trump, but with respect to Trump supporters as well, if that's part of a divide and conquer strategy, too, or if that has the potential to boomerang on the left. We'll pick it up there with Dan Henniger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page right up. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show we're speaking with dan henninger he's the deputy editor of the wall street journal's editorial page and of course uh, his column is always must reading including his most recent offering last week which we discussed on my morning show in chicago last week trump's trumpian final days uh dan uh, over the weekend of course you had uh, not just uh, trump being deplatformed uh being banned permanently on facebook and instagram and twitter uh and 
so many more that have followed suit, much like so many followed suit when Apple and Google and then Amazon decided to pull Parler off the web. Um, so not just individuals being platformed, but a platform for those individuals being deplatformed, uh, sort of speak, with respect to Parler. And I wonder if uh, these sorts of activities combined with stories like the Lincoln Project, uh, putting together a list of all the Trump administration officials to make sure that they're held to account, whatever that means, for being part of the Trump administration and the people losing their jobs for not for for just attending the Save America rally on January 6th, not even though they have been charged with no criminal wrongdoing, didn't breach the Capitol, didn't do any of that, but post on social media that they were there and now they're gone. Uh, and so many other examples of this sort of uh, purge coming from the private sector. Uh, I wonder if that is also without downside for the left or if they really have um, exposure to a boomerang, this this purging that they're doing of Trump supporters, Trump allies. This has the potential to boomerang on them politically. I think it does. Indeed. Make no mistake. What happened inside the breaching of the Capitol by this mob was an extraordinarily serious event. Trump does have to has some culpability for that. There's no question about that. But I think going to leave office on January 20th, and we have to move forward and as a country begin to sort this out. But also as conservatives and Republicans, we have to be able to sort this out. Because as you're suggesting, make no mistake about it, the left is on the offensive. They are trying to use what happened last Wednesday as a pretext for pushing conservatives out of politics. They always have tried to do that. This is an extension of what began to happen on the campuses years ago. I'm sure on your program, you talked many times about campus speakers being driven off the stage. Well, this is the same thing. And now you've got tech companies like Twitter and Facebook and Amazon participating in it. I think there will be a downside for them, for sure. There are people on the Democratic left who think those tech companies should be taken over and turned into public utilities. They don't trust their power. One may assume that after, well, one may assume that Twitter and the rest of them are doing this to try to fend off a probable regulatory challenge from the Democrats. People forget that there are a lot of left-wing Democrats who really don't like these big tech companies. Elizabeth Uh, Warren. Yeah. And so they're trying to fend that off. Now, You know, it's a good question whether the Elizabeth Warrens of the world will say, gee, these people really on their side, they are literally driving conservatives off their platform. But you mentioned Brandenburg versus Ohio, the seminal uh, free speech case in 1969. And I think this issue of free speech in the United States uh, is going to become an important one, that most Americans whatever they may think about these political figures that are in front of us right now, do want to be able to express their opinions. And there is going to be pushback against this deplatforming, which sounds to me like the successor to canceling people, uh, these awful developments. There is going to be pushback against uh, these efforts. Yeah, it's interesting. There was something that came over the transom yesterday, uh, uh, a law in, that is due to be passed in Poland that would fine big tech companies $2.2 million every time they unconstitutionally censor lawful speech according to polish law um if uh, if 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 somebody does not break polish law with what they post then the social 
Businesses will not be allowed to remove content or block accounts. Now, I think that law would be unconstitutional in this country, but the sentiment is important. And it's one of the things that's sort of lost. You know, is it legal what these uh, big tech companies are doing? Yes, it's legal. But but there's a bigger question than just legal because there's things like fairness norms in this country. There's things like constitutional norms in this country. And people take those norms of due process, of fair play, of free speech beyond just the black letter of the law. If you have a culture that runs a corporate culture, you're trying to promote a culture that runs a follow of those norms, you know, you're going to have a fight on your hands. I, I certainly would hope you will. Well, the cultural norms is a big issue. It's kind of a subject for another time. But there is a reckoning that is about to take place over social media. Just think back, Dan, to when this began. Facebook began as this posting platform, and it was full of grandmas and grandpas and mothers putting up pictures and stories about their families, right, and being in touch with one another. It was all kind of fun. And then in short order, we found that girls in high school were using Facebook to ostracize other girls in the school, the mean girls phenomenon. And before you knew it, social platform was being used for very ugly social purposes. Then it um, sort of extended into politics. And you know as well as I do, Dan, if you get onto Twitter, you can see Twitter accounts, not just of Donald Trump, <clears throat> but of other prominent journalists that are simply pouring out invective, ridicule, mockery, and ad hominem attacks on their opponents. There is something about those platforms that brings out the worst in people. I think, as you say, cultural norms is something we have to come to grips with. This is a downward slope, and it doesn't look like it's going to be particularly fun to just keep sliding down to it to the bottom of the cliff. Yeah, actually, the uh, Wall Street Journal had a good uh, op-ed over the weekend, too, on this topic, uh, talking about uh, the Russian dissident uh, that is the bete noir of Vlad Putin, saying, you know, Twitter was wrong to to, uh, to 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 ban Donald Trump. I mean, they're, they're coming from the same place as Putin was essentially his analogy. Yeah, Andrei Navalny, that's exactly what he said. This is a powerful tool that is used by authoritarians to suppress and shut up their opposition, and whether you're shutting up a girl you don't like who's 15 years old or shutting up Donald Trump or conservative commentators generally, it all is the same thing. And as I say, there's going to be a reckoning. The status quo is just not going to hold up, Dan. I don't yeah, know he, exactly where it's going. And Navalny also made the point that others have made, but he says, I get death threats uh, every day on Twitter from, and I have for many years, and no, nobody who's threatening my death gets right. banned on Twitter and, and you know all these other dictators whose Twitter accounts are up. So, I mean, the the uh, the, 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 the sort of cynical political agenda of the social media companies is not lost on the average person paying attention either, which just uh, foments that moment of truth, I think, that you're describing. Yeah. Well, we know that all these, you know, these these big tech companies have just sort of captured sunshine uh, with these platforms that um, just make so much money from them. And we've all listened to them talk about how they have uh, moderators and use artificial intelligence to try to root out the most extremist worst stuff. But what we're seeing here in the past week is the reality is there's no real balance. I mean, ultimately, they're rooting out right of center and conservative presences on these platforms and allowing uh, people on the left, not to mention authoritarians like uh, the Ayatollahs in Iran, to run unfettered. Uh, they're not going to be able to get away with that. Uh, at all that's kind of been exposed as an unlevel playing field no matter how much they protest they're trying to, to correct it it's not true 
Dan Henniger, deputy editor of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Dan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good talk to you, Dan. Because it's the heat of the moment. The heat of the moment. The heat of the Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Zed Jelani writing at the American Conservative uh, piece, Don't Burn Down Democracy to Save It. Uh, has this anecdote. I always remember the summer of 2014 when a diplomat in Egypt's Washington, D.C. embassy came to speak to my graduate school class at Syracuse. I argued with him that Egypt's disenfranchisement of the Muslim Brotherhood would lead to more bloodshed. He dismissed my concerns. Years later, Egypt is a hotbed of terrorism, and as many people who are not allowed a chance to compete in the political process have instead turned to violence. Parenthetically, he he remarks, we saw similar results in Algeria after they violently repressed Islamist political organizing. Of course, no one is talking about outlawing the Republican Party, Jelani writes. Well, not so fast, Zed. Uh, This tweet from Paul Sperry, RealClearInvestigations.com, came over the transom this morning. Developing. Democrats in both the House and the Senate are planning to draft legislation to classify MAGA rallies as, quote, domestic terrorist activity, unquote and require the FBI, DOJ, and DHS to take steps to prevent such, quote-unquote, domestic terrorism. This is being led by Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois and Representative Brad Schneider, also from Illinois. For more on this topic of our representative republic and its future, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Zed Jelani, freelance journalist who in the past has worked for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, The Intercept, and the Center for American Progress. Zed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, no one is talking about banning the Republican Party per se, but they're uh, talking about characterizing uh, MAGA events as uh, domestic terrorist occurrences, which uh, uh, is a bit... Uh, and, and frankly, the rhetoric matches that legislative initiative apparently being undertaken by two Dems on the Hill. Um, the, the idea that despite uh, so many of these MAGA rallies over the years and what we have seen at them, which is very little incidents of violence or, and, and so forth, that uh, now because of what happened on January 6th, a few hundred out of many tens of or hundreds of thousands, that this is a domestic terrorist group. And this is, seems to me an effort to kill... Uh, or depress the Trump support if not, they can't, uh, you know, get to Trump himself personally. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what's happening here is you have to remember these people were in the congressional building, they were in the Capitol building, and in the office building next door when this was all happening. So I'm sure that they have a personal experience that's harrowing for them, that's kind of emotionally amping them up. And then in addition to that, you have to recognize that these people have also been the political opponents of the Republican Party uh, more broadly, and Trump in particular, for the past four years. So they also see it as an opportunity, I think, to move, to make it basically more difficult for those Republicans to, to run for office, to take office, to, to organize their base. Um, and I think that fear they personally experience, in, in, in addition to the political opportunism, opens the space for things like what you just described, for some members of Congress trying to expel the Republican members of Congress who had made election objections, which is something, by the way, that was done to the past three Republican presidents. Some number of Democrats, I think dozens in the House, 
had raised objections to Trump's election, had raised objections to Bush's two elections. It's not a super unusual thing. It was a higher number this time. I think it was a higher number of Republicans did it this time than Democrats did in the past. But in both cases, it was fully, you know, it was a legal and transparent way to do it. That's the forum to do it, and it's always been that way. Uh, but in terms of drawing up these measures, you know, it seems like we're, you know, there's a climate of fear right now. And I think there is something to be scared of. It, it, it was a huge security failure, right, that 2,300 Capitol Police yes. officers could not prevent a riot on Capitol Hill. I mean, they, they have to patrol 10 square blocks. How could they not do that? It is worth looking at that, getting accountability, fixing our security measures around our government buildings. But it, you have to separate out illegal, violent behavior from lawful, protected speech. And hold, and you know, I was here in this, living in this, I live in this uh, DC area. I was here. Uh, the rally had something like 40,000 people. Most of those people just went to demonstration and went home. Completely legal, protected speech. There's nothing wrong with it. A smaller group of people, maybe 500 or something, were the ones who were involved in that riot. And of course, they should be prosecuted to extend the law, as the people who are rioting all last year should be. But it shouldn't be used as an excuse to then say that people who have to share some of those beliefs should therefore be prosecuted. That's kind of like saying if someone believes in some Black Lives Matter theory about policing, they should be prosecuted or prevented from speaking because someone else who shared that belief ended up throwing a Molotov cocktail at a cop car or burning down a business or breaking into a government building. You know, all the things which happened over the past year, by the way. Um, and I think that before Democrats set this precedent, they should really think about when this precedent could ever be turned back on them, because it could very well be one day. And uh, also the uh, the issue the the, the approach that uh, Democrats are taking of uh, preaching unity in one breath and um, stifling dissent in the next. I want to pick it up there when we return with Zed Jelani, freelance journalist who in the past has worked for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, the Intercept, and Center for American Progress, discussing his piece. Don't burn down democracy to save it over at the American Conservative. We'll be right back. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Zed Jelani, freelance journalist who in the past has worked for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, The Intercept, and the Center for American Progress. And as Zed, before the break, we're talking about to distinguish, making the obvious distinction, which uh, doesn't seem obvious these days anymore, the distinction between protected speech, people peacefully expressing themselves as they did on January 6th, and those small percentage of attendees who uh, crossed the line and committed acts of violence and should be prosecuted and so forth. Something else, though, too, it seems to me Democrats who are preaching unity, Joe Biden's preaching unity, you know, move past this ignominious era of Trump and so on and so forth. Boy, if they were serious, it seems to me rather than trying to shut people up or characterize them with a broad brush as domestic terrorists, as we were talking about, they would say, well, you know, I understand there's people whose faith in the system has been shaken, faith in the in the electoral system, faith in so many of our institutions. Let's start by, you know, answering some of the legitimate questions that have been raised. Now that, you know, Trump is out of the way, this is the perfect, this is the opportune time for them to say he handled it wrong and he, he muddied the issues, but there were legitimate concerns. And I want to make sure that ultimately people have confidence in these institutions. Otherwise, we're not going to have much of a representative republic uh, going forward. This, it seems to me that would be, this is the perfect bridge. But instead, what you have is even further 
mocking, ridicule, marginalizing of Trump supporters, Trump supporters, peaceful Trump supporters, rather than trying to address any underlying questions of substance. Yes, and it is jarring given Joe Biden's campaign pitches, because Joe Biden's campaign pitch was basically we're going to make politics boring again. And the way we're going to do that is with unity, through healing, through saying we are one country, rather than constantly having the feuds. And I think one of the most effective and resonating critiques of President Trump was that he was constantly involved in feuding with the other side, right? And Joe Biden said, I'm the antidote to that. You know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to bring us together again. And I think you can't bring someone together if you are not allowing them to speak if you are denigrating them, if you are self-in-campaign mode, you know, you're deciding their political rights based on what they believe rather than on having one standard of law for everybody. And I think that, you know, Joe Biden has said some unhelpful things in the past week or so. He compared some Republican senators to actual Nazis, which is ridiculous. I mean, Senators Ted Cruz and Senator Hawley, they did nothing unlawful. They did nothing seditious, which are, you know, some of them are being accused even with words like that. They use basically the same process of Democrats like Robert Boxer and John Lewis and Maxine Waters and Jim Clyburn used in the past to raise their election objections. And, you know, most people didn't agree with them. They were voted down. That's fine. But there's been a conflation of their political ideas with the violence of a few people. Anytime anyone well, the, does the, that, yeah, that's, there's, a, there's some... that's a path to suppressing, uh, suppressing democracy, honestly. Yeah, and there's something else too. You know, for all of the oh, this is the, with respect to the election, the electoral certification objections. And I'm not necessarily a huge fan of of that. And so this isn't really a voice of support, but it is to do a little compare and contrast, like we're talking about with respect to the reaction to violence. A little compare and contrast from the same parties over last summer and the uh, today. But if the one of the criticisms, including by some Republicans of those objectors, was to say, this is not going to change the outcome. This is, you know, a symbolic gesture. This is to appease a, a political base. There's nothing substantive here, and it's unnecessarily delaying the transition. Okay. Well, what is uh, all of this uh, 25th Amendment, impeachment, resignation, criminal prosecution talk? I mean, that, that, that is not going to come to pass either, certainly not between uh, – certainly not the 25th Amendment, which is a Mike Pence call, uh, but also impeachment and conviction between now and January 20th. What, what is this if not symbolic and unnecessarily fraying the social fabric more and, and uh, delaying the smooth transition of power knowing that you're not going to – to be able to affect what you want, which is, you know, the public removal of President Trump from office. I mean, look, here, here's the reality that, that the country needs to face is that, yes, Joe Biden won the election, but it was also a fairly close election in some regards, right? In some swing states, if the vote had gone 10,000 votes the other way, we would have a different president now. And that means that we're dealing with a country where basically almost half of the electorate is one way and half the electorate is the other way. So we can't seriously be talking about disrespecting either side's choices, right? We can't talk about, you know, overturning the election and giving it back to Trump. And we also can't talk about not even letting Trump serve out his last week of office. How angry and enraged would so many people be in that circumstance? And we can't, you know, I really don't, I would really, really think the most dangerous thing right now is when you had some members of the House of Representatives talking about expelling all the Republicans who made election objections. I mean, yeah. that's over 140 people. That's the majority of the House GOP caucus. If you did that, you would essentially be crushing a political party and giving the Democrats just like a supermajority in the Congress. That would be the most undemocratic thing of all. That would be disenfranchising over 100 million Americans who voted for those people. And 
you know, those are the kinds of things that if we do them, everything will get worse. Of course, we're all scared and terrified from what happened in the riot. We want a decent response in that. And I think that starts the real audit of the security of that building and the security of a lot of government buildings, honestly, given what's happened over the past year with the riots all over the place. But it doesn't mean that we start eroding basic building blocks of our democracy, basic tenets and principles and pillars of our elected, you know, representatives and, and as you said, a representative republic. Because if we do that, then there will be a lot of people who say, I don't want to vote anymore. I don't want to partake in the political process. I can't even speak my mind online. Instead, I'm going to be picking up a gun or I'll be building a bomb. You know, you'll be pushing people to, to, to address politics in extra legal or, or extra parliamentary means, right? We want people to be involved in the legal process. Yes, people are going to disagree. Yes, people are going to argue. Yes, people are going to vote. Sometimes you win elections, sometimes you lose them. But that's the peaceful way to make change. We don't want people to think there's no more peaceful way for them to be represented because then you do get what happens in other countries where people take up arms, where there's fighting in the streets, where there's rioting like there was last year and there was in the Capitol, where there's violence, where there's, you know, we don't, we don't want any of that. That's not, we've always, the founders were very intelligent, very careful in setting up a system that allowed people to air their grievances nonviolently and to, to reach consensus through the process. And we want to defend that process, whether it's from the right or from the left. I think that's well said. It's it's remarkable that the, the Democrats' unwillingness to learn the lesson of both Trump's victory and the mistakes that Trump made after the victory to try to ad- address the division in the country uh, that uh, was attendant to his victory. I mean, zero lessons learned. It's, it's just an effort to sort of whitewash what has occurred over the last four years. And it's not going to work. I mean, it's just not going to work. Zad Jelani, freelance journalist who in the past has worked for UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, The Intercept, and the Center for American Progress. His piece at the American Conservative, Don't Burn Down Democracy to Save It. Zad, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show, and I just wanted to close the hour with a couple of end notes uh, from our conversation with Dan Henniger earlier in the hour. One on the matter of impeachment and uh, just the logistics of it combined with the one constitutional interpretation of uh, the time frame in which an impeachment and conviction must occur. Alan Dershowitz was on with Maria Bartiroma yesterday. Uh, here's his perspective. But the case cannot come for trial in the Senate because the Senate has rules and the rules would not allow the case to come to trial until, according to the, the majority leader, until 1 p.m. on January 20th, an hour after President Trump leaves office. And the Constitution specifically says the president shall be removed from office upon impeachment, etc. It doesn't say the former president. Congress has no power to impeach or try a, f- a private citizen, whether it be a private citizen named Donald Trump or named uh, Barack Obama or anyone else. The jurisdiction is limited to a sitting president, and so there won't be a trial. 
It's interesting, uh, and you know, who am I to uh, disagree with the constitutional interpretation of famed Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz? Well, I'm me, and I won't necessarily disagree, but I will raise the idea that there is an alternative interpretation and some precedent for it in terms of whether or not Trump or any official subject to impeachment and conviction could be impeached after leaving. In fact, there's a, a case from the Ulysses S. Grant administration, his war secretary, a guy named William Belknap was um, implicated in a kickback scheme involving a military vendor. He resigned um, uh, just a, a few minutes before the House was scheduled to impeach him in 1876. He thought it would preclude him from impeachment. In point of fact, the House approved articles of impeachment, tried him in the Senate. The Senate tried him like five months later. It, it was back in March then in 1876 where he had the transition of power. And it was in August that the Senate... Uh, conducted his trial. Ultimately, they did not get the two-thirds necessary to convict him. But the point is, of course, that proceeding happened after the Ulysses S. Grant administration was out of office. So it's just interesting to note. Now, if uh, it would be remarkable if the Biden administration and congressional Democrats really wanted to pursue that precedent to keep the pillaring of Trump going after Trump has left office. Uh, that could, I think, also have a boomerang effect like we were talking about with Henninger. But it just uh, a, a note on the topic. It's interesting legal history and constitutional interpretation. One other a point, too, about the big tech companies. Will Chamberlain over at Human Events made this point. Isn't it interesting that these companies that are lobbying to protect their Section 230 protections, opposing uh, Trump administration officials, um, Republicans, maybe some Democrats, too, who are open on the idea of removing their Section 230 protections because they're not uh, passive platforms, they're publishers. That's the argument, right? So the same companies lobbying to protect those protections for themselves are essentially suggesting Parler shouldn't have those protections because they're holding Parler to account uh, for the content that is posted by Parler users where they suggest that the law should protect them for content that is posted by Twitter users, Facebook users, etc., this is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Follow us at danprofshow.com on uh, Twitter at Dan Proft and uh, Parlor at, oh, I'm sorry, you can't on Parlor at the moment, but uh, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show on social media until uh, I am purged as well. A flashback to uh, the summer of love, to borrow a phrase from outgoing Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. Oh, the summer of love in Chicago took this form. You remember back uh, just five, six months ago? when defenses for indefensible violence were au courant, a Black Lives Matter leader in Chicago explaining looting to the public. I don't care if somebody decides to loot a Gucci or a Macy's or a Nike because that makes sure that that person eats. That makes sure that that person has clothes. That makes sure that that person can make some kind of money because this city obviously doesn't care about them. Not only that, that's reparations. Oh, and it's reparations, sure. The kicker. Uh, right, uh, one of the... Uh, Works of mercy, right? When you were naked, I stole a pair of Nikes for you. It's very Christian. But uh, indefensible defenses of violence are not being offered by conservatives at present in response to 
what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, yet uh, those same consistent conservatives still are identified as the problem by our big tech oligarchs and establishment political class. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by Andy No, editor-at-large of The Post Millennial, author of the soon-to-be-released Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy, which comes out February 2nd. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on today. On uh, January 6th, you were Johnny on the spot, as you normally are, uh, when the violence was taking place at the Capitol, uh, which was uh, terrible, indefensible, as I intimated, that we talked about extensively last week. Uh, you were also reporting something that very few other outlets was reporting, that the, there were riots again, violence taking place on the streets of Portland, streets that have long ago been turned over to the thugs, including thugs who almost killed you, and, and just that the dichotomy of the focus on violence here and the the ignoring of violence there, as well as sort of the larger comparison contrast between what happened the entire summer versus what happened and the reaction versus what happened in the reaction to January 6th. Yeah, my response to the, the brazen attack um, at the Capitol Hill siege last week is the same response that I had throughout 2020 when rioters in, in my home city of Portland and in, in nearby in Seattle actually tried to break into federal property. In the case of Portland, it was thousands of people for weeks and weeks trying to burn down the federal courthouse in downtown. And when the Trump administration sent in federal law enforcement to help protect that facility, they were called secret police, Gestapo, Nazis, and occupying force by people from all the way from local city council all the way to the governor. So to see now these same people who were at best silent last year and at worst encouraging a riot in the name of BLM and anti-fascism, now condemning the riots that happened in the Capitol, I have disbelief, but I, I can't say I'm, I'm uh, I guess, surprised. It's what we have witnessed is the, the mainstream left in America becoming very, very comfortable with political violence. It, we shouldn't be surprised that other people of different political views are now of the belief that we resolve our disagreements through violence, apparently. Well, it's something um, you really hit on there, too, thinking about what happened at the Capitol and the calls that were the, the feverish calls that were being made to the FBI to get FBI reinforcements in there to get the National Guard scrambled. Well, the, to protect politicians. So these politicians were afraid, understandably so, I'm not criticizing that, but they were making a call for federal law enforcement to intercede because the local police had lost control of the situation. But when, as you were describing, that same call was made in a place like Portland or Seattle, that was jackbooted thugs being called in to disappear peaceful protesters. That was the story. Yeah, I can't understate how bad the, I would call it, insurrection was last year in Portland and Seattle, in that in addition to being over 120 days of nightly, and I'll repeat that, nightly riots, there were actually successful attempts to claim territory and to claim these areas as autonomous and entirely separate from the United States. You may recall in Seattle, the disgraced mayor there let that go on for three weeks, ended up with people being shot and killed, multiple injured in shootings. 
in Portland, the city allowed that to go on in a residential area in recent weeks. Um, we've had four riots in Portland since New Year's Eve. We had one the same day that the Capitol Hill siege happened, and there was no focus on that. And those attacks were also anti-government in focus, but coming from the far left because of that, it's not getting coverage. As you saw the events, I know you were doing your own reporting, but as you saw the events unfold in the Capitol and seen all the coverage since, one of the conversations is, you know, exactly who was committing the violence. Yes, it was clearly some Trump supporters, but there was some suggestion from FBI sources as well as uh, a company that does facial recognition that that were people that had breached the Capitol who had previously been identified at BLM events or BLM rallies or Antifa activities and, you know, people trying to make sense of whether or not this is uh, organic or this is infiltrators that took advantage of a situation to, uh, you know, spark uh, the, 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 uh, the violence. And, and I just want to get, you know, somebody who's covered so much of this sort of your handle on what you saw with all these various characters and their costumes and their affiliations and so forth. Well, a lot of the people who were filmed being involved in that siege have been identified, and some of them are pretty prominent right-wingers, uh, at least on the fringes. Um, with that said, uh, I'm not going to dismiss entirely that there may be, that there actually were at least one confirmed person on the far left who was there, and, and it's not an insignificant person. Uh, his name is John Earl Sullivan. He's from Utah, and he was arrested and charged over a violent riot in probably Utah last summer where a person was shot. He was he's accused of allegedly threatening to beat a woman in a car at that riot. Um, he's been on camera uh, calling for a violent left-wing insurrection against the U.S. government. So him being there, um, I mean, it remains to be seen if he will actually be formally charged. I do know that last Thursday night he was questioned by police in D.C. over his involvement or alleged involvement in the siege. Um, um, I think what, I mean, my takeaway from this whole thing is just the disparate treatment when it comes to right-wing versus left-wing political violence. The, The massive coverage on what happened at Capitol Hill is, it's not just, I mean, what happened is significant, but it's being overblown to people comparing it to 9-11, where thousands of people were actually killed, comparing it to Pearl Harbor. And I don't, I, I find those comparisons quite disrespectful and not accurate of the events of the day. Um, and then on the flip side, when it comes to covering actual insurgency attempts that are organized and funded and go on for months and months in major American cities, there's no coverage. And then the perception is that there's no threat coming from Antifa extremism. So I have a book coming out on the 2nd of February called Unmasked. It it goes into um, what this movement actually is, what they want, and how organized they are, and how all of us have been underestimating just how dangerous they are. And and do you think that uh, Antifa is uh, still ascendant, uh, particularly because of the election results, perhaps, that um, that uh, they are, are growing rather than diminishing after some of the violence has settled down, as, at least as compared to what we saw over the summer? Well, we're not even two weeks into 2021, and there's already been multiple Antifa-led riots in major American cities. And on top of that, since the Twitter banning of uh, the U.S. president, uh, there have been other protests 
by Antifa held in the streets that have become violent. Uh, two days ago, there was one in San Diego, and they were recorded on camera with signs saying, for example, that uh, Ashley Babbitt uh, deserved to die. Uh, she was one of the protesters who was killed at the Capitol. Uh, they were holding their propaganda flags and symbols, and they assaulted some Trump supporters on the beach. And then yesterday in Manhattan, there was a, I would call it a, a militia-style parade by Antifa. They were marching in the streets of Manhattan holding shields and in their black shirt uniforms and their riot gear and talking about how these streets are theirs. So uh, they are ascended and that they feel empowered and that not only do they have now a soft ally in the upcoming in the incoming administration, they also have quite explicit allies in big tech. He is Andy No, editor-at-large of The Post Millennial, author of the forthcoming book, Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. And again, that's out February 2nd. Andy, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Parlor CEO John Mates was on with Maria Bartiroma yesterday talking about uh, his site uh, going dark after Apple and Google and Amazon dumped Parlor. But it wasn't just them. It's fascinating to uh, hear Mates uh, tell it uh, the uh, coordination and. Uh, the domino effect as well. If uh, those three juggernauts drop you, then I can't be within a country mile of you. Not just these three companies. Every vendor from um, from text message services to email providers to our lawyers all ditched us, too, on the same day. And, and, they're, and they're trying to uh, falsely claim that we were somehow responsible for the events that occurred on the 6th. And uh, Mate's saying... Um, Look, uh, the example of Parler should uh, – people should take heed of the example that is being provided by these big tech companies right now. They've given us no legitimate remedy. Uh, They've tried to, you know, ask us for, you know, to cooperate with them on a few things. We've tried to give them everything uh, that they wanted, you know, of course, without sacrificing our principles. But there were remedies to do it, and and they just don't care. They, They just don't want us on the Internet. So they somehow want to make us responsible, and this seems to me uh, like an excuse to just basically eliminate free speech at a convenient time, you know, for them. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dominic Green. He is the Life Arts, Life and Arts Editor of The Spectator. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Does uh, Parlor CEO have it uh, sussed out about right? This is a convenient time to eliminate speech, and they're trying to make us responsible for uh, content on our site when they don't accept such responsibility for content on theirs? Absolutely. And it's one of those cases where the letter of the law and the spirit of the law are completely different. The spirit of the law is everybody is meant to believe 
in free speech and equal access to information. And what's gone on here is the opposite of that, because it amounts to silencing half the country, in effect. For years, people said the Silicon Valley tech giants are blatantly biased politically. They're donating massively to the Democrats and they vote for the Democrats. And their response was, well, you know, this is a free market. And if you don't like it, build your own platform. But when people have built their own platforms, they now find that those very same giant companies are strangling them at birth. It's completely wrong. It's completely unconscionable. It's almost illegal. We have laws against uh, monopoly practices. The way in which Facebook, Google, Apple, or Twitter all moved at the same time and in the same way suggests that they worked together on this. And that's called a cartel, and that's not meant to happen at all. So it's not just we need to fix the laws that we have. We actually need to use the ones we already have. In addition to the uh, hypocrisy that you're describing, uh, something uh, else that uh, Douglas Murray pointed out in a piece of the Daily Mail is, of course, the disingenuousness of these uh, tech CEOs. He writes, uh, you know, the business model is simple. Every time some great controversy occurs, it enriches Twitter, which makes more money from advertising, data harvesting, and much more. The social media companies like the money their model makes them, and so they loved Donald Trump. They pretended not to, but five years ago, the then contender for the presidency used Twitter with incredible skill Trump knew the media would treat him as an idiot or misreport him, so he chose to speak to his supporters and gain new followers by going to them through, directly through Twitter. And uh, every time he did, it went around the globe. And every time that happened, that redounded to the benefit of Twitter's bottom line. Uh, this is all very true. The model of outrage uh, is, is lucrative for these companies. Uh, and Donald Trump is the one who proved, actually, that their business model had no limits, that it wasn't just a matter of entertainment and swapping little bit clips with, you know, cats doing cute things, that you could actually run a presidential campaign through social media. But the problem is the, the social media companies uh, are only happy, in effect, with one party being in power. Now, we call this kind of behavior tyrannical if anybody else does it. It also means that in the long run, if this is how the Internet is going to be run in the United States, the, the rest of the world will go its own way. There are already countries, for instance, China, uh, Iran, where they have their own Internet, in effect, their own circuit, so they can keep out information they don't like. If our allies see that this is how America behaves, they will simply end up doing the same. They will, they will have their own freer Internet because the, the result of this is going to be a closing down and a, a stigmatization, as I said, 74 million people. And yes, the uh, riot at the Capitol last week does represent you know, a crossing of the Rubicon in terms of civil behavior. But these very same social media sites were used to plan the rioting in every major American city last year. And nobody was kicked off for doing that. And so uh, this, uh, this banning of Trump, this taking down of uh, competitors in the social media space, um, what does that say to conservatives and libertarians who um, say that uh, the uh, entire play in Western civilization is for Free markets, the triumph of the private sector over the government. I mean, there's no bigger acolyte of Milton Friedman than I, but what does free to choose mean when people freely choose Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, Apple, Google? 
the, the free to well, choose, and, and 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 yeah. that that and so that's what we've freely chosen. We've freely chosen to be subject to be uh, subjugated by big corporations rather than big government, and so that's better. Well, that's exactly the problem. Uh, we don't have the choice, and in this case, the big corporations are almost indistinguishable from the big government. Uh, it's true that. You know, what used to be the public square is now effectively the social media sites. That's what they've become by being so successful. They don't want to take those responsibilities on. Perhaps it's impossible even for them to maintain the laws like that. Um, Donald Trump had promised to uh, remove the Section 230 protections, which allowed them to claim that they weren't publishers, that they were just effectively just running a pipeline. and It wasn't their fault what came out the other end of it. Um, Joe Biden didn't say anything like that when he was campaigning. He said that they should regulate themselves, in other words, carry on as normal. Uh, the, uh, the San Francisco area donated $200 million to the Biden campaign, uh, the biggest donations um, that anyone has ever received from any particular sector of the country. Uh, there's absolutely no chance that this incoming administration is going to do anything about this. And all the signs, actually, are that this is going to intensify rather than go quiet or get worse. The absolute uh, agreement between uh, the Democratic Party and the Silicon Valley giants when it comes to what sort of society we should have means that we're going to see a lot more of this, uh, a lot more of this purging of, of perfectly reasonable people, a lot more of the hypocrisy, and a lot more of the long-term damage to American democracy. He is Dominic Green, Life and Arts Editor for The Spectator. Dominic Green, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. One of the uh, aspects of the postmortem on all that transpired on January 6th is the Capitol Police's performance, the decisions that were made leading up until January 6th, in addition to those that were made on January 6th when violence broke out. The Associated Press reporting last week that the Capitol Police had been offered help by the Pentagon days beforehand to deal with the crowd that was anticipated for the Save America rally, but they chose not to accept that help from the Pentagon because they did want to appear draconian in their uh, presence. Um, they also turned uh, away the Justice Department's offer to send in FBI agents as the protest was raging, at least initially they did, until a call was made by uh, uh, a, a deputy in the Department of Justice to scramble FBI agents for reinforcements, which ultimately happened. They uh, say the police, um, the reporting from insider sources, is that the uh, Capitol Police were uh, gun-shy over criticism as to how the protests last summer were handled. 
AP, despite plenty of warnings of a possible insurrection and ample resources and time to prepare, the Capitol Police planned for a free, planned only for a free speech demonstration. Still stinging from the uproar over the violent response by law enforcement to protests last June near the White House, officials were intent on avoiding any appearance that the federal government was deploying active duty or National Guard troops against Americans. Hmm. For uh, more on that, as we're learning more about the decision-making uh, from all relevant parties leading into and as well as on January 6th, pleased to be joined again for our weekly installment with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, the Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Great. Great to be with you. And, you know, I don't know if folks know because they just hear my title and foreign policy stuff, but my approach to this is a long background in dealing with homeland security issues and public safety issues at Heritage and also a long career in the military, including a lot of that work dealing with the National Guard, seeing the National Guard deployed under all kinds of different situations. So I think I come at this with, with some degree of experience and, and expertise on the issue. So give us your impression of, of what transpired, the decision-making that led to what transpired, perhaps in part, and as you know, more, more information is uh, becoming available. Well, I mean, I, I have so many observations. I'm going to need another radio show. First of all, let's be very clear. There is no place for political violence in the American public square. And the people that committed that violence, they're responsible for it. They should be prosecuted for it. They were wrong. And there's no mitigating way to, or excuse or whataboutism for that. That was wrong. And it was particularly egregious to assault the capital of the United States of America. So let's just put that on the table, get that clear. Um, clearly, the Capitol Police failed. That's not even up for debate. So um, one thing for clear is... Uh, going back to all the uh, rhetoric about defunding the police and the outrage that people had that the National Guard were out protecting stuff, clearly the Capitol Police were more risk-averse because of that intense and wrong criticism. The other thing I would say is, uh, look, you, you, have to, you have to do your risk analysis, and you cannot just hope things are okay and you know, one of the lessons that we learned before in the, in the violence uh, in, in, against the White House and other places was by essentially not preparing at the front end, you, you put people's lives at risk. So, so clearly the Capitol Police is wrong. The only other mitigating thing I will say, kind of, if there's something in their defense, is what we have seen from demonstrations that were pro the president, and we've had a lot of them in Washington, D.C. over the years, and we've had a lot of them in recent weeks, they have all been incredibly peaceful and responsible and uh, observant of law enforcement. And, and perhaps, I would say, maybe that lulled people into a bed of complacency because this is not something they had come to expect. In contrast, when, the pre when President Trump gave his nomination accept speech at the White House, the, the district was completely unprepared. Uh, completely under-resourced, completely refused to call out the guard, really put people's lives at risk. And it was because they underestimated what was clearly a known risk that people were going to come out and harass people around the White House. So, I, I, you know, this is one of these things that there's plenty of fault to go around. Um, and everybody should be held accountable for the faults that they made. Everybody. 
When we come back with the Heritage Foundation's Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the riots at the Capitol and about some of the reporting that suggests that it may at least have been in part a so-called inside job. More with Jim Carafano right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano about the, the uh, riots at the Capitol. And Jim, I wanted to get your take on some of the uh, video that's been posted online of Capitol Police seeming to remove barricades so crowds could move around in and around the Capitol, in addition to the reporting over the weekend that the FBI is investigating the possibility that there was some inside help for those who intended to uh, criminally trespass and worse. Uh, they, there's reports about uh, uh, hand ties being found on site. There's questions about how it was that some of the uh, rioters were able to locate Nancy Pelosi's office as quickly as they did. What what kind of stock do you place in perhaps collaboration on the law enforcement side or somebody on the inside with respect to some of those who rioted? Yeah, well, let's, let's start with the videos because I think that's really, really important. I'd go back to the Iraq war and people would come in and they'd show me these videos and say, this is obviously a war crime, right? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't have any context. I don't know the perspective. I don't know the angle. And today in the world in which we live, you don't know if videos have been edited or doxxed or doctored or whatever else. So I am absolutely completely skeptical of video evidence that I see online and conclusions that people reach out. I give you an example. A lot of people looked at the explosion of the CC, on the CCTV in Nashville, and they said, oh, my God, the explosion actually happened across the street. It's got nothing to do with that guy in that van. Well, even that one, if you actually just take that video and, and slow it down, it's very clear what happened is the, you, the van's there and then the van vaporized and it's gone. It, what appears like happened is, is the force of the explosion blew across the street and you're seeing that, the, that, that fireball essentially be ejected. But if you, if you just run the video at normal speed, it looks like the explosion's happening across the street. So... You're going to get all this stuff. You know, this is, first of all, this is why we have important that we have a free press, why we have freedom of speech. People get anything out there that they want, and then we can all evaluate it. I, I evaluate it by looking at what meets the standard of professional judgment on conduct and exercise. And I, and I would do that in this situation here. All kinds of reports, all kinds of things. Um, my, my answer is always you should investigate and, and uh, get to the ground truth. But, and, and I don't think, and you guys aren't doing this, but let, you know, we should be crystal clear. There is no play, place for political violence in American public square. doesn't matter what side it comes from. doesn't matter if it's two people or 10,000 people. It's wrong. And, and the fundamental reason we're wrong, not just because it's a crime and active violence and people die and get hurt, but when you cross over to political violence, then you're starting to take away other people's right to free speech and freedom of assembly. And that's just wrong. Uh, Jim, on another topic, uh, what, if any, insight or information do you have surrounding the nationwide power outage in Pakistan? Over the weekend, um, you know, I've seen the same reporting that other folks have. So I will go back, you know, and some of the people being connected to kind of solar winds. I, I would go back to um, if you remember when the 
um, Iranian uh, centrifuges were hacked, and they were hacked by a software which was very, very common uh, in all kinds of things all around the world. And that that virus, that penetration actually linked, and it went global. And so I don't know if something targeted at some country, or particularly the United States, then created a whole cascading series of vulnerabilities. I, I will say, if, if you look at Pakistan and you look at their cyber security and cyber practices, um, they are not world class. Um, I would also say there's enormous amount of nefarious cyber actors in Pakistan. So um, there, there's you know plenty of potential sources of vulnerabilities there. Well, what about the Vatican? Uh, I have so many issues with the Vatican. <laughs> Well, I, I don't mean generally speaking. I mean the, the I'm not looking for an encyclical. I'm the with respect to the the uh, apparent power outage there too, and and of course there's a lot of conspiracy yeah, I mean, these, theories floating online. Yeah, I mean the, these these things. I mean you you know you, you can't you don't want to when you do analysis you don't want to connect the dots you have you, know, you right. want to connect the dots that, that really matter. But clearly. Um, in solar winds, there was an enormous amount of information that was potentially compromised, and and that could link to controls of systems all over the world, not just inside the United States. Um, I wanted to also get your take uh, on the nomination of William Burns to be the CIA director by Joe Biden, and um, uh, you know, I mean, especially you know. <laughs> These guys, it's uh, William Burns coming from the Carnegie Foundation. Uh, it reminds me of the uh, turnstile of Goldman Sachs guys becoming Secretary of Treasury. I don't like it. Is the short version of what I'm trying to yeah. imply. Um, but, well, but your assessment of Burns? Yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, from a constitutional perspective, you know, we go back. Elections have consequences. Uh, people get to nominate who they want. You have a confirmation process that goes through that. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and we'll see how that plays out. My, my guess is um, Biden will get confirmed most of the people that he wants, you know, kind of regardless of, of concerns that people have about their qualifications or, or conflicts of interest. Well, I, I understand that, but I'm, I'm looking more for sort of what is the national security power structure uh, what does that imply about uh, the sort of uh, geopolitical agenda that the Biden administration will have, yeah. not to mention uh, a deep, uh, a quote unquote deep state that um, has any semblance of accountability? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, you know, it's difficult um, to tell at this point. Um, we've had a variety of people at the head of the CIA. Not all of them have had had deep um intelligence experience some of them been obviously political picks as opposed to career picks um like like uh, gina haskell so we'll kind of have to see but this this does get back to an important issue that we talked about a while back which is you give what you want get them confirmed get them, that's that's your business but co- part of the reason why this system works is you do get you're supposed to get responsible from oversight from congress for the things they legislate on and fund and going back to the Errol Sowell issue we just talked about a while ago, when when you're having people in the committee who have committed really, really not appropriate behavior and have not acted responsibly on 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 one of the most important things we have, which is intelligence of oversight, that that's that's a recipe for disaster. 
He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks as always. Thanks for jumping into the tough issues. That's really important. Good talking to you. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Well, we wouldn't have a, a complete discussion of all that has transpired since January 6th if we didn't contemplate the words of one LeBron James, right? As nicely encapsulated in his Do You Understand Now t shirt after the rioting that occurred in the Capitol. LeBron saying, we live in two Americas. If you understand or don't see that after seeing what you saw, then you really need to take a step back. Not even just one step, maybe four or five or even 10 steps backward and ask yourself, how do you want your kids or how do you want your grandkids to live in this beautiful country? Because yesterday was not it. I couldn't help but to wonder if those were my kind storming the Capitol, his words, What would have been the outcome? We all know if anyone even got close to the Capitol, let alone storm inside the offices, inside the hallways. Hmm. What would have happened? Well, golly, I don't know. Maybe we have some indication from what happened uh, over the summer when uh, you had uh, mayors telling police departments to stand down and cede parts of their city to mob governance. Autonomous zone? Uh, You will never understand, he continued, the feeling that we feel being a black man or being a black woman growing up in America. Do you understand how hard it is for us to continue to live our lives the way we live, continue to inspire, continue to give everything that we got? Everyone jumps on the bandwagon of what we provide, what we bring, the way we dress, our music, our culture, our food, everything. Everyone steals from what we do, and then they want to act like they did it or they brought it into the world. We don't get our due diligence. We don't get the respect. We don't get anything back for what we've given to this country besides a slap in the face, says the uh, non-college educated billionaire or nearly billionaire athlete, 36 years old. This country has not been very, very good to LeBron James to hear him tell it. Now, on the other hand, China, (laughs) who he can't stop singing the praises of, um, that's uh, the model. Uh huh. He's uh, not ashamed of... uh, his Chinese, Chinese communist overlords and their concentration camps and their unleashing the COVID uh, virus on the world and so forth. Their one-child policy. Yesterday was shameful. He continued because he just continues and continues. We setting an example, good English, for all these other countries in the world of how to run things and how to be great, how to maneuver and change the world and things of that nature. And yesterday we look like a third, fourth, fifth world country. It's just very embarrassing. The only way we look like that is to have people like LeBron James speaking as a reflection on our public school system in this country, and particularly apparently Akron. Uh, oh, by the way, speaking of the downtrodden in California, since he plays for the Lakers, million people have signed a petition to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. If they get to a million five, if get to a million five by March, you could have a recall election a la Gray Davis from two decades ago. Uh, so, um, uh, in terms of his pulse on the two Americas that he thinks exist, in terms of what what I guess Trump America and LeBron James America, Trump America and 
75 million uh, mostly middle to uh, mostly lower middle to upper middle income voters and LeBron James and all his billionaire friends in L.A. and Hollywood. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. A good piece at uh, amgreatness.com by Emory English professor Mark Bauerlein, writing of the daring left and the cowed center. He uh, argues the first fact of sociopolitical life in America today is this. Liberals in elite positions are frightened of the left. Frightened of the left. A college president may direct an institution with a $900 million endowment, meet with legislators and business heads, boast a 30-year record of academic honors, but the sight of eight African-American undergrads marching toward his office with scowls on their faces alarms him like nothing else. A CEO may draw a $3 million salary and manage 1,300 workers, but the threat of a boycott coming from a few networked millennials with ties to sleeping giants calls for immediate emergency action. They know what they're up against. Leftists form digital mobs, shut down events, block access, cancel, and dox. They show up at people's homes, harass employers, and ruin businesses. They're ruthless. They're irrational. But the tantrums they throw muck up the works and clog the pipes. And what these liberals in charge of elite institutions have to do is keep the pipes unclogged, keep things rolling along, and keep the money rolling in. And so in lieu of their ability or their inability to confront the leftist mobs, they invent the threat of you know, radical right terrorists, Trumpians. That's the argument Bauerlein makes. How does that comport with this piece that we touched on last week, and we'll develop more now, Psychopathy and the Origins of Totalitarianism, a good write-up from James Lindsay over at New Discourses, who uh, joins us now. James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. James, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. So uh, w- with respect to um, the idea of the liberals in charge of elite institutions appeasing the leftist mobs and helping to invent, in part, the threat of uh, terror from the right so that they don't have to confront the mobocracy of the left. Uh, does that make sense to you? Is that, uh, is that a rational response from those uh, who are the heads of elite institutions to those that threaten to destabilize those institutions? It is the response we're seeing. I don't think I would call it rational. In the essay I wrote that you referenced, uh, Psychopathy and the Origins of Totalitarianism, I make the argument that what happens in these situations where totalitarianism can take root is that a false reality is constructed and people are induced by either false arguments, which are referred to in the academic literature as a paralogical structure or paralogy, a paramoral or a false moral framework to participate in this construction of a fake reality that satisfies the people who are the most bullying, these people on the left, whether they are genuinely or whether they're merely acting that way in in service to their ideology. The ideology, I claim itself, on the far left is psychopathic in its construction. 
So people who participate in it act like psychopaths and lacking, as you actually described reading from the article or talking from the article. And so people who are confronting that don't know what to do. And so constructing a false reality that they construct a false reality that then satisfies those very intolerant people that are working in service of that ideology and then force other people to play within that false reality rather than in true reality. So it's sort of like two cohorts, what, what people that uh, know what they're perpetrating a pseudo-reality and people who don't know that they're living in one and perpetuating one, the, the, those who have essentially, you know, the, the cult leader and then the cultists. The cult leader may know what he's doing. The cultists are brainwashed into seeing the cult leader as messianic. Right. And I'll add a third cohort then, which is to say, I mean, I think at this point you talk about like a university president. I think they're probably most of the way into the cult at this point Mm. uh, in service to the ideology. But if you talk about your average CEO, they probably are not. Those people are held hostage because they don't have the tools necessary to resist, as you described, the clogging of the pipes and all of these other literally – psychopathic approaches to to pushing one's political agenda. They've left the rules of engagement that we use in free societies. They're using very powerful bullying tactics, both with bad arguments that people don't know how to answer and with, with bullying moral terms like calling people racist, white supremacist, fascist, and so on, and Nazi, the whole thing. And so they bully people into participating. And that's why you see so many of these videos. You know, one of these people gets caught up in this, one of these CEOs or a sports hero or something gets caught up in this. And the next thing you know, they make this video apologizing and it looks like a hostage video yeah. because they are. They're, they're now being they've been taken hostage. They don't believe the ideology, but they know if they don't participate with it, if they don't play in this thing, they know it's false that they might be destroyed. The nature of this. So you kind of have three cohorts. You have the people who actually know what they're doing, people who are participating because they've taken up those beliefs and believe it's key to being a good person. That's your cultist. And then you have the group who are held hostage. Those are the three relevant cohorts. And then you have the bigger group, of course. It's everybody outside of this, staring at it, not knowing what to do with it or trying to fight against it. And, and so this this helps to explain why you see sort of in mass movements like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter ban Trump for life. And so, and then you have Reddit and Twitch and all these other platforms Trump's probably never heard of, has no footprint on, but they feel like if, if the big guys are moving that way, we better not miss that train the same way you saw, well, if, if Google's going to do it, then Apple's going to do it, then Amazon better do it with Parler. Right. You see that exact same kind of behavior, whether that's you know lemmings moving in a group because that's how that goes, or whether that's coordinated is a, is a good and important question we need to be asking right now. Whether that matters is actually a good and important question we need to be asking right now. But we do know that the majority, especially with those tech companies, are completely captured by the ideology. They are somewhere in the cultist range. Um, they believe this stuff, I think, at a pretty serious level, or at least they're cynically using it to play along for reasons that will probably eventually be uncovered, but that we don't at the present know. And, 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 you know, these, these clinical terms you use, like psychopathy, I mean, it's important just for definitional, definitional baseline. You're talking about people who have, like, persistent antisocial behavior, a lack of empathy, remorse, uh, egotistical, disinhibited. And so all the characteristics that give rise to if somebody were to be given the reins of political power, totalitarianism. And so you can see that in a, in a more narrow sense in a private sector enterprise but then you start to uh, pull together big private sector enterprises, big private sector enterprises that influence or for, uh, even are able to manipulate the government. Boy, now you're really cooking with totalitarian fire, aren't you? 
That's right. And so let me make really clear that the, the, the clinical psychopathy is something that is relatively rare. It is a small fraction of the population. It is a stable proportion across time. It's, in fact, slightly less stable. It's slightly gone down because we have a smaller number of head injuries, especially in childhood and birth, that can cause the types of lesions that cause that. But it is, a, it is relatively stable at somewhere just below 1%, and it does not take many of these people. My point is that the ideology that they have constructed is which people will be drawn, people who understand that the ideology is something they can use to grift, in other words, other psychopaths, will be drawn to use it when they see that there's an advantage and power connected to it. When they get big enough, the ideology they construct itself is what's psychopathic. And then normal people who are not psychopaths in any way, clinically, behave as though they are because they're enthralled to and don't know how to get away from or believe a psychopathic ideology. And this is how I'm, I'm, I argue in the article. This is how totalitarianism happens. And then when that starts to spiral out of control, you are at the breaking point of a society and you are at tremendous risk. And, and and this is separate and distinct from the the, the sort of the madness of crowds uh, diagnosis, which can be fleeting. What you're talking about here is an ideology that that takes hold, that grips and uh, and suppresses dissent, uh, sort of um, more categorically, such that it can actually you know persist. Right. This is this is like the madness of crowds, like set in you know, like it's like it's codified concrete or something yeah yeah it's gone much more deep than that and when it begins to gain what the cultural marxists called and i don't mean some jewish cabal in fact i'm referring to antonio gramsci in particular who is the father of of that line of thought the italian communist um what those those guys when they laid out this idea of cultural hegemony which means when you get all the cultural power so we've been talking about this culture war for years We've been saying, oh, well, the right has most of the political power right now, at least when Trump was president, and the left has most of the cultural power. Cultural power in in the end is stronger because it will, as we now see, lead to all of these other forms of power, whether it's corporate, whether that's the Democratic Party taking all three houses of the government, uh, branches of the government. You have a real problem on your hands when that happens. Um, I shouldn't say branches. They don't have the judicial branch. They have both seats in Congress, both houses of Congress. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So this is this is where where you start to have again. This is this is kind of the tipping point when people you know, I grew up everybody my age. I'm 40 some odd grew up asking how how could it possibly happen? How did the Nazis possibly happen? And this is this is how Um, in this case, we're seeing Trump whipped up into the scapegoat, love him or hate him. He's being whipped up into the scapegoat in the exact same way, and Trumpers are being whipped up into the scapegoat in the exact same way that we saw as, as Weimar Germany started to fall apart. And um, this isn't a good place to be in in, uh, in any society. He is James Lindsay, founder of New Discourses, author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. James, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the show, and uh, just continuing building off, really, our conversation with James Lindsay from New Discourses. Let's continue to talk a little bit more about the purge. Uh, one of the other things that uh, the uh, Jacobins are incentivized to do is, as sort of Lindsay was int- intimating when he talked about scapegoating Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, you better find somebody to blame before they turn around and blame you. And I'm talking about uh, big tech and uh, an example of this. A former Obama administration official, this is uh, covered by Yahoo Finance, uh, his name is uh, Dipayan Ghosh. He's the co-director of Harvard, the uh, Harvard Kennedy School Digital Platforms and Democracy Project. Uh-huh. And he was, uh, as I said, an Obama administration staffer. I think they should be held responsible. I think they are in large part culpable for all the harm, all the hate, all the death that we saw yesterday. He's an economic advisor to Obama, former Facebook privacy and public policy advisor as well, saying that Facebook and Twitter were responsible for the, the death and the mayhem that occurred on the Capitol, in the Capitol, on January 6th. So if you're one of those big tech guys trying to maintain your ability to manipulate the government, you better make sure you're offloading any focus on you onto somebody they despise more than you, and thus... Let's go after Trump, ban Trump, right? The purge, how the purge works. Something else, too, in terms of the uh, standard. This is, uh, wasn't really picked up by, it was picked up by some people. It's really important. The uh, statement that Twitter issued in uh, announcing its uh, permanent suspension of real Donald Trump, his Twitter account, reading from their post. After a close review of recent tweets from the Avery at Real Donald Trump account and the context around them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement to violence. I see. So forget Trump here. Specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter. So the ban of Trump comes not on the basis of the content. And by the way, other anti-Trump commentators, including that Wired magazine, have said Trump's previous tweet, Trump has tweets that were a lot worse than the tweets that were cited as sort of the the last straw for Twitter to permanently ban him. But it's not based on the content. They said it. Their words. It's based on the interpretation of the content, whether that interpretation is accurate or inaccurate by others. Is there some reasonable man standard in assessing the interpretations? Because people can interpret uh, things erroneously on purpose. They can do so mistakenly. They for whatever reason. So some reasonable man, you know, the interpretation of the reasonable man in terms of making this assessment of how the content is received. No. So there's no limiting principle to Twitter silencing policy. And this is the same silencing policy that Apple and Google demanded Parler Institute if Parler was going to stay up and throw in, obviously, Amazon Web Services as well, since they took them off the servers and thus took them offline. And as we talked about um, a bit earlier in the program with Dan Henniger, the question is not whether or not this is legal, technically legal. It is legal. The question is, how does this corporate ethos comport with social mores of fairness and constitutional mores of free speech and free association in a free America? And if it doesn't align with those American values, the follow-up question is, do you really want to voluntarily place through your participation, because remember, you're the product for big tech, as we talked about uh, with Dominic Green. Do you really want to voluntarily place through your participation such power in those hands? You know, I liked it when Revenge of the Nerds just meant lambda, 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 trying to take over the Greek council, not uh, trying to live in the pseudo-reality, as James Lindsay was explaining. 
created by these big tech oligarchs. And I'll tell you what happens with the purge, too, in terms of what kind of America do you want to live in? If you think you're just going to run roughshod over people without consequence, if you think uh, you can take away people's uh, livelihoods and irreparably damage their lives and they're just going to lie back and take it. A friend of mine in Chicago owns a cigar shop. I'm a patron. And um, this uh, cigar shop has made national news now. Perhaps you've seen the story. The CBS affiliate in Chicago covered it. After the declaration that uh, Joe Biden had won the 2020 presidential election, he posted a sign, just a handwritten sign on his the window of his store saying, Biden voters keep out or Biden voters not welcome. Words to that effect. You get the point. Pretty straightforward. So some passerby finally noticed the sign enough to tip off CBS News. And look, if some conservative loses his or her job, uh, loses his or her scholarship, loses his or her admittance into a a school or a college or university, that's no big deal. Purging conservatives, purging Trump supporters, that's not a big deal. I'm talking about in you know, private civil society. Now, however, suggesting that uh, a Biden voter can't come on your private property, well, that's a news story. Of course it is. I don't think this news story is going to work out how the critics thought it might work out. But here is some, this is in Elmhurst, Illinois. This is uh, suburban Chicago. Elmhurst Cigar House. I'll give him a little pub, a little bit more pub. And this is the some of the Elmhurst residents, and this is an upper-income enclave, how they reacted to this uh, Biden voters not welcome sign. Did a double-take and looked at it. Just find it really, truly appalling. Biden voters keep out. Pretty much that I would like to stay out. <laughs> I cannot go in. But I find that offensive. I find it horrible. I'm a Trump supporter, so if somebody put um, Trump supporters stay out, I wouldn't, you know, find that a very kind thing to put. Mm-hmm. The uh, proprietor, my friend Sean Thompson, uh, who has actually sat in for me uh, with Scott Shalady on this show before, uh, he was contacted to react to uh, the reaction of those individuals who don't approve of the sign. And he had this to say, not giving an inch, uh, you'll understand as soon as you hear. Why put the sign outside of your business? I don't want them anyway. I don't want them in there and I don't want to have to pretend that they have respect for me. So I'm going to show disrespect for them. This is no joke. You do not want Biden voters in. Don't come in my store. Tell your friends. I don't want you in the store. I don't want you near me. Yeah. And the idea that uh, was suggested that this somehow may uh, endanger his business. Well, it won't be based on customers. It may be based on government or maybe based on leftist thugs vandalizing his place, although I wouldn't suggest it. But (laughs) these champagne socialist suburban women are so up their own behind. They think that anybody cares that they would leftist suburban women aren't going to patronize a cigar sh- store as if that has anything to do with a customer base of uh, Elmhurst Cigar House or any other cigar house. It's just comical. Oh, by the way, since this has made national news, gone viral online, what's happened? Of course, you know what's happened. Every Trump supporter around the country learning of this now wants to buy cigars, even if they're not a cigar smoker, just on principle, because I haven't heard of any business uh, posting a sign like that, and probably neither is anybody else. And so, you know, he's uh, first past the post, as it were, in terms of putting a marker down against those purgists, if you will. Something else to note, too, going back to what I was saying, the progression here, you can only push so much, you can only take so much. He didn't post a sign, and Sean's a kind of a volatile guy, but he didn't post a sign, Biden supporters not welcome during the campaign. Bernie Sanders supporters not welcome during the campaign. Did post that. But since, why? What's changed? Well, 
everything that occurred in the run-up to Election Day, everything that occurred on Election Day, and everything that has occurred since, particularly the treatment of people who have legitimate questions and legitimate grievances uh, with respect to the political ruling class of both parties. So now he's, you know, you want to take this fight public? You want to come after people in public? Well, you'll have some people that will rise to the challenge, and guess what? The Elmer Cigar House is one business that just did just that. This is Dan Brock. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the future of money and financial transactions in the digital age. We... uh, Talked a bit on Friday with Scott the Cow Guy Shalady about Bitcoin after it uh, ran up to north of forty thousand dollars a coin. That's it's now receded back to a little under thirty four thousand dollars, but it's uh, generating a lot of interest as it has for really many years. Um, more pronounced as you've seen the skyrocketing price. Our next guest is somebody that uh, is an unabashed crypto enthusiast proponent. And uh, somebody that I wish I would have listened to about, I don't know, a year and a half ago when Bitcoin was at like three grand. But it's still, it's still a little bit unclear to me. There's, it's, this is not um, without um, issues to traverse. And so to help us traverse them, we're joined by the Sausage King of Chicago's uh, offspring. He is Abe Froman Jr., or at least that's the name he's allowing us to use to have him on the program Abe, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So um, here is a one perspective on the recent run-up, what, what was driving the recent run-up in price, based on the possibility that, that major corporations would start adding Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to their balance sheets. If that is a fair read, ultimately, those big corporate players are going to want institutionalized mainstream crypto assets. They're not going to mind heavily regulated crypto assets, crypto-linked financial institutions. And so isn't this the challenge of crypto assets staying sort of fringe but all, while getting mainstream? And if once they go mainstream, doesn't the scarcity and thus the price change? Yes. And when I speak most about crypto, I, I'm what most people would call a Bitcoin maximalist. And that's maybe 90% true. Other stuff is interesting. But really, in my world, in my worldview – Bitcoin is really the king of the cryptocurrencies, and it's obviously being supported by its price rise. But probably the biggest news of 2020 was when Michael Saylor took MicroStrategy's public, uh, well, they were a publicly traded company, but he went public with the information that they went ahead and bought, I think it was, well, it was $250 million worth of Bitcoin when it was, you know, they started accumulating it early in May and June when it was about eight, $9,000. You know, he later then disclosed that he put another quarter billion dollars of his own money into it also. But at the end of the day, that was a, absolutely, I think people are going to look back in history and see that as being a bit of a wake-up call to anybody who's in charge of corporate treasuries that they need to diversify their asset class out of the dollar and, uh, and hedge a little bit into the world of Bitcoin. And what attracted me to Bitcoin when I first learned about it back in 2014, and I'm totally self-educated on the topic, just for the record, but 
literally the, the, the way that the code restricts supply. No other cryptocurrency has the strict supply limitations that Bitcoin has, even if a cryptocurrency claims that it has, you know, the ability to restrict the supply. They're still run by humans and groups of humans, uh, small groups of humans that can go ahead and make decisions to go ahead and change that coin supply whenever they want. Uh, So Bitcoin doesn't have that. There is no CEO of Bitcoin. There is no corporate headquarters. There's no place for the SEC to go drag somebody in front of, uh, you know, or congressional hearings, uh, dragging people in front of it and browbeating them in front of cameras uh, for political points. So that is what Bitcoin is. So yeah, but so so then what what is uh, is that's the 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 four corners of Bitcoin's value as a store of value like gold is and and that's it or is there functionality or u- use in financial transactions um, that uh, uh, that provides uh, you know more at- attractiveness than than just as a store of value? Absolutely. I mean, the store of value is kind of the the current thing, and you know the other thing too to consider about. Bitcoin is whatever the thing is that people are talking about today is going to be a different thing six months from now and 12 months from now and 18 months from now. And that's that's part of the fun of Bitcoin itself is the fact that the commentary is constantly evolving. Um, so, I mean, ultimately, the reason I kind of stopped doing public speaking or, you know, kind of seminars, so to speak, is that the only reason people were there is to find out how how can I make more money with Bitcoin? And when I mean money, I'm talking U.S. dollars. And I kind of became a bit of a cynic because that was all people wanted to talk about was the price of Bitcoin. I said, there's a, there's a lot more interesting stuff that is happening that is going to be built on top of Bitcoin as a financial service, as the internet of money um, that's not controlled by, you know, by governments. Um, anybody who's been involved in, you know, the, the banking system as a small business owner, if you get a, a wire hung up, you know, for three, four, five, six days, you have no recourse waiting for the banks to figure out what happened. That, that doesn't happen in Bitcoin. Bitcoin, you can move value within minutes. You get transaction IDs within seconds. Um, and value transfers settle uh, you know, within minutes, a half hour, 45 minutes. So this is an important point about the transactional utility of Bitcoin. I want to pick up on that uh, when we continue our discussion about Bitcoin with uh, Abe Froman Jr. right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking about uh, Bitcoin with Abe Froman Jr., who is a cryptocurrency expert, self-taught. And before the break, uh, Abe, you were making an important point that uh, even if your your wealth is in the physical world, Bitcoin could still have application in terms of commercial transactions. Absolutely. If you, so when you think of a Bitcoin, uh, it's, it's really, it's just computer code. And that computer code is currently right now programmed to be, you can subdivide it a hundred million ways. So inside of a Bitcoin is 100 million pieces of code that can be coded upon. So in the future, you can think of building financial services where a single Bitcoin could run 100 million 
100 million contracts. A single Bitcoin could run 100 million transactions. Um, so when you start thinking about how infinitely divisible Bitcoin is and what it can do in the future, uh, you know, paying your mortgage once every 30 seconds instead of once every 30 days, what does that do to your APR? Um, you know, what, what, if you could, what if you could pay for your car insurance by, you know, by the second that your car was actually started and moving? Um, everything that we do with money today will be done, you know, on the Bitcoin rails in the future. And, you know, this is just the beginning of it. I mean, we, we, we sit here and we can't quite understand. Well, one of, one of the other things that would be, I mean, I think for, for people who are novices in terms of its utility, so, speak to the security. So you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, anonymity uh, to the outside world with your Bitcoin holdings. And then if, if I'm going to do any of the commercial transactions or, or payments that you just described, you know, how can I trust the security of this vehicle to do the transaction? Well, I think the, the thing that speaks most volume or the biggest, greatest volume to the security of Bitcoin is the fact that the creator of Bitcoin has just short of one million uh, coins wrapped up in his wallet and is publicly available. And uh, when he put those there, it was essentially a bounty, a dare for anybody to go ahead and try to get access to them, to try to steal them. Um, and, and that is essentially the, the, uh, the long and short story of how you can prove the security of Bitcoin, because if Bitcoin wasn't secure, it's been 12 years um, and those coins haven't been touched or haven't moved. Um, you know, the, but the, the, the deeper answer to that is a, is a two hour uh, conversation. With respect to the other cryptocurrencies, maybe I don't have uh, 30 grand or even a lot of money that I want to devote to exploring cryptocurrency, but Ethereum and Litecoin and all of these other cryptocurrencies, how do you start to make sense of, of, of you know, one crypto versus another and, and what makes sense in terms of um, you know, taking a, a dipping your toe in the cryptocurrency water, if you will. Well, I, I would, I guess, my advice would be just start with Bitcoin, um, and then use that that uh, that entry into the Bitcoin world to basically figure out why Bitcoin is different than everything else. And then by that point, then you can figure out well, why is everything else different, and which ones, uh, you know, you know, which ones do you see of having having more value. Um, it's, it's a really, a, it's a complicated question to answer, but you know, and, and the other thing too, yeah. is you don't need $30,000 to buy Bitcoin. You could buy $10 worth of Bitcoin if you want, uh, because again, you can subdivide it into a hundred million parts. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I would, that's what I would suggest. What's the conversations you have with other people in this space? I mean, what are the concerns they raise, uh, or the, the horizon they're looking at before you have, the U.S. government intercede in a in a more meaningful way than it has to this point, and I don't just mean in the area of tax collection. Um, I mean, uh, the, a U.S. government does not want a financial system that evolves outside of the purview of the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and so forth. So you can suspect there's going to be uh, a knock on the door at some point, or an effort to knock on the door. And so, what 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 are those conversations like? So. This is one of the hard things that, you know, once you get involved in Bitcoin and really studying it is understanding what does borderless really mean? You hear people say, well, Bitcoin is borderless. And the fact is, is that it is. It's borderless. It, it doesn't answer to any any government. Um, it, it can't. It's impossible. The code wouldn't understand any direction from any outside uh, authority. So 
Now, could the U.S. government come in and start beating up companies that deal in Bitcoin? Sure, they could do that. Um, but that's just going to drive the utility, you know, outside the United States. And from what it seems like, and, you know, I do have contact with the Treasury Department on a, a lot of these topics in terms of, you know, what individual people within those departments think. And at the at the end of the day, I think everybody's realizing at that level that the, the genie's out of the bottle and there's really nothing you can do to stop it. Um, it's just learning about how to how to educate yourself and then go from there. You mentioned yourself, Todd. I mean, for people listening who want to do some self-education, uh, any recommendations in terms of places to start, uh, resources to access? You know, probably the best place that I went to, and this kind of probably sounds like a cop-out answer, but it's true, is, is just YouTube. Um, you know, by going to YouTube, and, and the one thing I would say about a couple things about consuming content on YouTube when it comes to Bitcoin is one, look at the older content to get your basis of education, like anything from 2015 and earlier, because that's when Bitcoin was just an idea, was just kind of a thing. Um, a lot of times people get wrapped up in current videos. So if you want to learn about the technology, look at the old stuff. Um, but also, I also encourage people to consume as much negative Bitcoin news out there, because what I found was the more, you know, the more haters that I ran into on, you know, YouTube or even in blogs, the more I realized that their arguments were all the exact same. Um, and the people that were on the other side saying, hey, wait a minute, have you considered this? Have you considered that? Um, were much more, uh, I, I guess, more appealing arguments to the case. He is Abe Froman Jr., his alias. Uh, must be a, a big Ferris Bueller's Day Off fan. Uh, he's also the Director of Operations at Digital Asset Redemption. Abe, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. I, I will. I will say one thing. If you're going to jump on YouTube, look up Andreas Antonopoulos. He is the he is the guru, the the professor of Bitcoin. Andreas Antonopoulos. All right, thank you, sir. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. To close out the show, talking about so much uh, mania, we would be remiss if we didn't include at least a, a brief review of some of the COVID mania. How's it going with uh, St. Andrew of COVID-19 in New York State with respect to vaccine distribution? Remarkable Twitter string here. New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer tweeting about uh, the New York City Healthy website and the application to get in queue for the vaccine. NYC Healthy, the official account of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. This very minute, there are more than 200 vaccination slots available on the for just tomorrow, Tuesday, on the New York City Healthy website. I'm concerned this signals twin failures of outreach and technology by the city. And there's more. The New York City Health site for signing up for a COVID vac vaccination is complex, burdensome, and buggy. It will present an obstacle for too many people, particularly seniors trying to sign up. This is a major problem. What's the major problem? The New York City Health 
the New York City Healthy site has a multi-step verification progress just to set up an account, and then a six-step process to set up an appointment. Along the way, there are as many as 51 questions or fields in addition to uploading images of your insurance card. Do you hear this? Vaccinations, we're going to drop ship them. We can handle as many as you got, HHS. And all people have to do is go through our multi-step verification process to set up the account, then six-step process to set up an appointment and answer 51 easy questions while uploading an image of your insurance card. And then you're all scheduled for your vaccination. When the New York City Comptroller says all of this will be particularly challenging for populations that struggle with digital literacy and digital access or attention span, how about that? This is, he, he, listen to him. Anybody paying attention? Is anybody asking St. Andrew of COVID about this? We should be number or or uh, Mayor Warren Wilhelm, a stringer. We should be number one in vaccinations in the nation from day one, and we should be using every tool at our disposal to vaccinate as many New Yorkers as possible, as quickly as possible. Instead, we've sent up a gauntlet that requires tech support just to sign up to and make an appointment for the vaccine. Uh, remarkable. Just remarkable, isn't it? Oh, by the way, something else that's remarkable, and I guess this has been going on in some quarters for some time, but it's just sort of reached me, um, I guess because I don't have children. But uh, this uh, lanyard protocol, saliva testing in lanyards, uh, one suburban Chicago school district sending out a missive to parents. Students will return to school with a new health assessment procedure. All students now required to wear a lanyard to school each morning to signify that the parent has checked the child that morning for symptoms and are sending them symptom-free. If a student shows up without a lanyard, that student is checked for symptoms by the nurse before heading to class, and so on and so forth. It's nice that they're not uh, branding them like cattle quite yet. And by the way, this is for a K-8 through public school system. I say that just because of all that we know about the incidence of transmission uh, and and even more uh, the relatively rare incidents of any significant illness with related uh, related to that population it just gets better and better but again cede all of your autonomy to the government cede your children's autonomy to the government instead please stay informed so you can stay courageous and we can stay free thanks for joining us on this edition of the damn prof show please do so again tomorrow This is The Dan Proft Show.